The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast may contain coarse language and descriptions of violence which may not be suitable to all audiences. Welcome to the Soldier On podcast. I'm Hugh Remington. In this series, we'll be exploring the stories that highlight, celebrate and connect our veteran community. From creating a sense of purpose to reclaiming that lost sense of mateship, finding meaningful employment can be a lifesaver for veterans as they transition from the Australian Defence Force into the civilian world. In this episode, we'll be exploring what meaningful employment means and its importance as told by three different guests, all prominent figures from the Prime Minister's Veterans Employer of the Year, BAE Systems Australia. We begin with former Army officer Matt Jones. I loved my time in Army and I, I felt I had a really lucky run. I joined straight out of high school as a 17-year-old, uh, not knowing at all what the Army was really about at that point other than what was on the advertisements and things like that from the uh, recruiting campaigns at the time. But I joined back in the late 90s and, and, and at that time Australia was you know, in its big peace and um, shortly after I joined we went to East Timor, the Australian Army um, went to East Timor so that started to make it all real and then of course when I was at the Australian Defence Force Academy in my third year is when a September 11 happened so that definitely put it sharply into focus about what I'd signed up to do and, and how my life was going to be very different thereafter. I was first deployed to Iraq in the May of 2007. I went over to Iraq as part of the Overwatch Battle Group, which was an Australian contribution to a British battle group down in the south of Iraq. And the mission there was to provide peace, stabilisation um, and be a part of the rebuilding effort. Australian troops were, were sort of out there on the ground every day, rebuilding schools, orphanages. There was um, still a whole lot of unrest in Iraq at that time, dealing with I suppose, the power vacuum that had been left behind. So it was a very precarious place to be in 2007. Um, and I was over there for about seven months. And I was one of the sort of operational planners in the headquarters of the Overwatch Battle Group. So there was, for me, it was a very sharp learning curve. It was an opportunity for me to put all of my training into place and really solidify everything that I'd been preparing to do for the sort of previous eight or nine years before that. We were based at a, a location called Talil, which was just outside of a town called An Nazaria, which got a lot of um, sort of notoriety at that time for being a particularly volatile hotspot within Iraq. And, you know, we were all very proud of the work that we were able to do there. There was a lot of engagement with the community, you know, like to see some of the looks on the children's faces um, when they were entering their new school that we built or the market that we were able to restore to give some kind of normalcy of life back in those areas you know that's something that we can sort of all take with us and there was lots of engagements that went on during the time that, that we were over there our battle group did their jobs admirably managed to go over there with a full contingent of young Australian men and women 
and return home with that contingent, although there were a lot of near misses and, and a lot of incidences that could have led to the loss of life. Even when you're sort of inside other barracks, we were continually under fire from indirect fire attacks, so rockets being used against us all the time. It was, um, you know, a very unsettling period of time. There was never a moment where you could truly relax. You, you, you always felt under threat by something. Those that were sort of out and about on patrols and doing those population support and rebuilding tasks were continually under threat by improvised explosive devices and primitive employment of rockets often fired from the sort of banks of creek lines and things like that that could do a significant damage. And I think we sort of put a lot of things in place to preserve the force and ensure that we're able to come home with everyone that we left with. But unfortunately, there were a lot of others that we were serving over there with the UK and the US who sustained significant losses while I was there. You do get sort of a caught up in your job over there. It, it is all encompassing. There's a very comprehensive operational tempo that sort of drives every kind of waking moment of your life. And you really do try and hard to stay connected back with your family and friends at home. But I think it's important that everyone sort of has their mission over there front of mind. So you're, you're doing everything right. Uh, but then when you come home, it, it, it was quite weird. I remember I, we got a week and a half off in the middle of the time. They call it relief out of country leave and we're able to go. Some people returned back to Australia and other people went into Europe for a bit of a holiday. And that was really weird because, you know, all of a sudden I went to Rome with my wife and she flew over to meet me there. And although I really wanted to be having this amazing time and this holiday that we'd planned and that we're really looking forward to, it was really hard to switch off from everything that was going on back there because all of my colleagues and, um, you know, all of my people that I was serving with were still there, still amongst it. So you kind of always keep one ear out to anything that was going on in the area of operations. And then when I went back, I quickly get totally back into that mission mindset. And then you come home. And even though there's like a, a few days of decompression, when you arrive back into Australia, it was really hard to turn that off and to try and get back into the sort of normal life back here in Australia. And some of the things that we just get used to doing here when you're not on operations just seem so trivial and and unimportant um, because everything when you're on operations everything is sort of there to support you achieving that operational outcome all of your administration um, is being looked after just to enable you to do your job well but when you come home you sort of have all that admin to do again deciding what you want to have for dinner on a Wednesday night you know organizing your tax return all of those things that you just haven't even thought of about why you'd be so ensconced with that operational mindset and and all of that stuff really comes as, as quite a shock. And um, there is a bit of a acclimatisation back that you need to get used to that all these people that you love so much, they just don't understand nor really care about the detail like your colleagues did that you were serving with. It does take probably uh, some months to get back to that kind of routine that you were used to because you can't just rip yourself out of one life, transport you into something that at the time meant everything because you're off overseas in some faraway land serving your country and then just go and plonk yourself back into the, you know, sort of the day-to-day uh, suburban lifestyle that you left. It took me like a couple of months. I really found that I missed my friends and colleagues that I served with a lot more than I thought I would. So sort of coming back and wanting to just be engaged and as present with my family and friends back here took like a couple of months and I probably didn't give myself enough leniency for that either. Like I, I, I think I expected I'd be just the old Matt as soon as I got off the plane. 
After another deployment, this time in Afghanistan, we then fast forward to 2011, where Matt works in a different part of defence, finding success in obtaining capability development and acquisition type roles. He was selected to be a battery commander of the 16th Air Land Regiment and was due to go back to Afghanistan. That was until he had dinner with his wife, Renee. And my wife and I were out at dinner. It seems we do our best work out at a nice restaurant somewhere over a bottle of wine. And um, she had quite a tough time while I was away. I, I always maintain it was a lot easier for me over there than it was for her back home. And she knew I was going to Afghanistan again. We had a great life in Canberra. Our friends were here. Um, we were probably looking to have kids at that point. Um, so she just asked me, you know, and it was the only ever time that she, she asked me whether I'd look to do something else. And because I was working in a different part of defence at that time and sort of working with government more closely and dealing with businesses and defence industry players, I felt I had a more expanded network and had other options open to me. So it only took a couple of weeks of work and I was able to secure a job outside of defence and I was able to transition into that. So I had a very seamless transition. It was effectively, I took my uniform off and put a suit on. It's like those advertising campaigns in World War II about the people on the farms picking the potatoes are just as important as those on the front lines. And that's how I felt moving into defence industry. I was being able to have that influence on where our future capability was heading to ensure that the future men and women who were serving were better protected and, you know, had better equipment. So I was really comfortable with the decision to transition. Renee was really happy we could continue our life here in Canberra and I could still continue to make a difference. I've always had such a supportive and loving family. I'm a very open character, so I've always been able to sort of share my thoughts and my fears and vulnerabilities and things like that with friends and family. So I think that really helps. But what I have you know, seen and, and I've had numerous close friends, colleagues, superiors and subordinates that have all gone through their own mental health journeys post their service. I've always sort of tried to be there for them. And I often speak about, I've had to ask that question to my friends and colleagues on numerous occasions, are you okay? And almost every occasion their answer has been, no, I'm not. Um, And then that's when the sort of real work starts. And that's when you really have to commit to that person that you're going to be their rhythm as they get through their other challenges. So then if we get to 2017, I had a really close mate. He and I joined on the same day in the same location. We went through ADFA together. We went through RMC together. Um, He happened to be in Iraq at the same time as I was there just by chance. He went to Afghanistan a couple of times after that. Him and his wife embarked on their family a couple of years after we did and had, you know, like had this beautiful daughter to come and join their family and um, we were close we stayed in contact and I could tell throughout the sort of that year in 2017 that there was a lot of work pressures that were starting to mount up he was working on a particularly challenge and demanding project and things just seemed to be on the outside at least to be getting on top of him a little bit from a work perspective Um, he was a very robust and resilient guy though so he did everything in his power to try and you know shield all of us from those challenges. And um, I was just on my way to a routine meeting um, one morning uh, here in Canberra and I sat down at the meeting and one of the people that was supposed to be there wasn't there and, and I asked the reason for that and, and he said, oh, because my friend had taken his life the night before. You know, we were all, you know, just absolutely blindsided by this. It was, um, 
this guy was the strongest of all of us, the leaders of leaders, the the men amongst boys, as we all were when we went to Adfra um, and to Duntroon. So I went over uh, to his house uh, that morning and his wife was there and we had a hug and, you know, it was just, it just really shook all of us to, to our core because it was just one of these things that, you know, there was just this sense amongst our friendship group that if he couldn't sort of cope with his life pressures, what hope did we have? And then, so we all got together during the sort of wake and that process. And then I found myself on that, that night, just walking around and talking to people and people were sharing with me their own vulnerabilities and their, and where they'd got to in their life. And it seemed to me that whilst the veneer was, was there and that everyone seemed like they were, they were doing well and coping well, there's a lot of people that are actually going through some uh, significant traumas. And not all of that was sort of related to their service, but a lot of it was. This whole sort of trauma that one goes through when you're transitioning out of Defence Force, losing that service family, losing that sense of identity, losing that sort of scaffolding that kind of supports you and keeps you sort of oriented and mission focused just goes away in a second. And a lot of people really struggle with that. So it was at that time um, I had, it was, it was actually one of those cliche look into the mirror moments in the morning and said, you know, um, instead of admiring this problem for too much longer, I, I really felt that I needed to become part of the solution. And, and I tried to work out how best uh, that I could do that. And at that point, John Bale, a guy who had been thereabouts um, in my career in, in Army, had gone off and founded Soldier On. So I reached out to John uh, at that time and said, um, mate, I'd like to sort of do more than I'd been doing previously. So that's when I came on board Soldier On as an ambassador, and then which ended up becoming a sort of more executive type arrangement where I, I succeeded John as the CEO of, of Soldier On. So that, of course, came at a cost to me financially and, you know, where my career was sort of going previous to that. But I thought it was, you know, it was an extremely important thing to do. Soldier On, when I joined, was funded through the community, corporate sponsors and partners. But then when, when I was uh, sort of at the helm, we were able to grow that and secure uh, some government funding, which has enabled uh, the organisation to scale to ensure that it's able to support more veterans and their family members. So I was at um, Soldier On for a, a year, running a charity of that size without that assured funding, but then still being able to uh, provide the services to those who need it was an incredibly a challenging task. I gave it absolutely everything that I had, but you know uh, the pressure of that you know, just really weighed on me and my family and, and everyone else around me at that time, just trying to keep this thing growing and keeping it relevant to the needs of modern veterans and their families. So midway through 2019, um, I left the organisation and started here at BA Systems Australia. So I'm the head of business development. So I look after all of the growth opportunities for BAE. And so we are across all domains within the Australian Defence Force uh, industry landscape, are providing sort of capability into the Air Force, Army and Navy. So I look after all of the future growth opportunities for the business. We have about 6,000 employees or probably just under and over 10% of that employee workforce are veterans. So we've got about 600 veterans. Whilst uh, in my early time at VA Systems, I was able to raise our Veterans Advisory Committee, which was a mechanism to uh, provide those 600 veterans with a single voice to be able to influence the way that we you know, attract, recruit and retain veterans inside our business uh, and also 
to set that infrastructure up to be able to best support veterans and their families that work for VA Systems Australia. So I feel like I'm still able to contribute to improving veterans' lives and ensuring they have a great sort of company or a great avenue uh, to go down after their service career ends. The Veterans Advisory Committee at BAE Systems has helped many veterans transition from working in defence to civilian life, helping veterans understand their qualities and how to translate their defence learnings into other industries is a core function of that. Our next guest, Gus Campbell, shares his experience with retraining for new pathways. I joined um, 2000. I was going to say straight out of school, but I, technically I worked and collect trolleys and I, I was a storeman at Bilo, which doesn't even exist anymore. It's a supermarket. My dad was in the army, so my family's one of five generations that have served in the Australian Defence Force. I basically joined because I thought this is a really good opportunity for me. I was starting to study uh, IT at TAFE. And so I joined and then um, the Twin Towers went down. That kind of changed the landscape. You, you train for a deployment, but you don't really know when the deployment's going to happen. Those events sort of fast track. Um, and then because of the period and because the unit was so heavily involved in a lot of operations, you just did back-to-back -back deployments. You came back for a little while and then you left again. There just wasn't enough people. At one stage, we had like a handful of people in country. Everyone else was deployed overseas. And just because there was just multiple campaigns happening at the same time, it just made it really hard for people to get respite. Depending on what's going on for the day, the work orders could be maintenance on a simple IT network, could be the satellite communication system that goes and brings messages from home, or it could be something that's happening with the on the operational side. So there's a whole different networks for different tasks. It's not as dangerous, I you know, from what I saw. It wasn't it's a different type of risk. You've got people there who aren't happy that you're there because they don't support what you're doing. Different when you're in there, when you're actually in the war zone. So it depends on where you are and, and the job that you do. Like I felt relatively safe inside the wire. It was only like when you're traveling between camps or bases that you felt a little bit exposed. I've got friends of mine that, that were uncomfortable and they worked mainly in the comm center or the operations center. And there's screens that are up on, you know, that show what's happening with the drone strikes, what's happening with operations. Things are getting radioed in from guys that are, you know, frontline. And you hear it all, you see it all. Right? You can't ignore it because it's, it's, it's all around you in the comm center. I felt safe inside because you're, you're inside. It's a heavily fortified. There's, a, there's guards on the, on the doors. And we used to joke around and say, you know, like you put your weapon in the weapons rack, but you like, if, if you need to grab that, then there's a shit show that's happened outside, right? There's no way that you should be involved because you are so far inside the line, inside the perimeter, it's like, it should be like, a, it should be a last resort, right? So you do feel safe from a physical point of view, but it's hard to block out what's happening out there because I guess that's, I guess the psychological piece of it is, God forbid, if you know that unit, right? You know that unit or you know that person or you know, you know the voice of, I guess, the person on the other side and, and they're in trouble and you, you know their voice because you've worked with them on an exercise or, you know, they've got that. Some people got like familiar calls that come out of their voice, their vocabulary, certain words that they might mispronounce some part of the phonetic alphabet or whatever, so you know that person. That makes it hard, I guess, from a psychological point of view. Gus's own priorities in life had started to change with the birth of his first son. While on deployment, Gus had missed his son beginning to walk and talk, which influenced his decision to transition to a civilian role so he could spend more time with his family. Luckily for Gus, his first role out of defence was working with an IT company that had a Navy contract. 
sharing some similarities with his role in defence. Still, other aspects of leaving defence certainly presented some challenges for Gus. It was really weird. You still had contact with your mates because there were some that were coming back from deployments and you want to see them, you want to talk to them. You're just relieved, you know, that they came back and so you talk to them. So you feel a little bit sad about the fact that you're, I guess, or maybe a little bit guilty about leaving them behind because you know that by you leaving, there's a gap now and, and you've contributed to that gap. That means that they're going to have to do more deployments. That means that they're going to get less of a break in between. So you feel guilty about that. The other side of it is, I guess, the it's a different life, right? You're trying to adjust like you eat. You know, you wake up, you put on a uniform. Someone has already planned out your day for you. Like someone's got your day planned out. You haven't lived it yet, but they've already planned it out for you. What you're going to be doing that day. And, and when you get to civilian life, you you know, you're, you're onto your own devices, right? Um, the main difference was like being able to talk to people who weren't in defence because the first thing they ask you is like, what was it like over there? Or it's not like the movies is the first thing I normally say within the first couple of questions. Like there was a lot of downtime, right? And you're sitting around and like, we still joke about it today with my mates and we go like, everyone got told to bring, back then it was DVDs, right? That's how old this is. Like, so everyone bring DVDs. Yeah, 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 cool, cool. Like no one thought to bring anything other than Star Wars. Like it's just kind of like... Really? We should have... There's only so many times that you can watch Star Wars, right? Like, you know, and there's only different ways that you can do it. Oh, let's watch it in the way that it was in the release order. And then we go, okay, someone else has got a great idea. Let's watch it in the storyline order, right? But it's still the same movie. So you go, like, but you got nothing else to do, like, in your downtime. If you're, if you're not on shift or you're not in your rack sleeping, you're, what are you doing? So, you know, a lot of time at the gym, a lot of time watching Star Wars. One guy bought, one guy bought Titanic, I've got to admit, but it just... And you know who you are. That was a sin. I don't know what you were thinking, mate, but seriously, Titanic? Like, wow. <laughs> the other weird thing, I guess, when you come out of defence is you miss, like, all these, like, events and people go, oh, yeah, I remember that. And you're like, well, I don't know what you're talking about, mate. Like, I don't remember when because I wasn't watching the news then, but Jen Hawkins, like, she stepped on a dress and a dress fell down or whatever. So I was at this thing and she was there and people were asking her about, oh, you know, how was the dress incident or the the wardrobe malfunction and I'm going I don't know what the hell you're talking about mate like and then later on someone had to explain it to me and then you get those keep coming up you, know, you go oh did that happen oh I didn't know that I'm really lucky that I work in a job that's still in defense industry like a lot of guys um you talk about you know, what are you doing now and you know they're an engineer in, in defense but they're a tradie elsewhere and it's just it's different right like I made him one he went back to defense because he couldn't make that transition because it was like I just didn't get the purpose of what I was doing it just it was a different you know, when I get up in the morning, you know why you're there and you believe in the purpose. If you're working for a, you know, for a non-defense company or you're working, it might not be the same and you kind of feel less valued. So that for me, the last, the, the sort of the, the first sort of few months were really hard in terms of sort of making that adjustment and going, okay, well, today is about, you know, connecting this IT system and then we're having a meeting with the customer and then we're having a meeting with the vendor and we're trying to get the best price point. In defense, it was like, here's the kit that you've been issued and you just install it, right? Like there was no conversation with the vendor about price point. You don't care about price point. You care about making the capability work. I don't know about bills. I don't know about like the electricity bill and your water bill and the area that we were in, like there was a shared water bill. I don't know about this stuff. And so I was really lucky that my wife knew about those things. But, you know, you start doing the day-to-day the -day things that everyone does and you struggle because you go, I don't know how to do that, right? Like I've never had to do that. Someone did that for me, right? So mental health was back then was still not spoken about. I mean, I don't think it's spoken about enough 
still today. It was only one of our really close mates. Um, he got out and he was really struggling. That became a really big blow because that was someone I looked up to and, and took a lot of inspiration from. And he got out after me. Things seemed to be going well, you know, initially, like he was on a break and he was, you know, catching up with his kids and um, really close friends. And, and he went through some real problems and, and it, it meant, you know, his relationship broke down and, and it just changed his whole life. And he went from being, you know, really outgoing, happy-go-lucky, becoming really cynical and uh, and it became very challenging, right? Because, you know, and at that point, it kind of made me think, how is this affecting people around me that I care about? And it did, for a moment there, it was challenging to go, you know, am I making the right choices? You know, should I have stayed in? Is that the reason why he's having these problems now? You can't help but do the math, right? You go, that last tour where he had that event, I would have been on that tour, right? That would have been my spot. So you go, you know, is that the reason why? And then I saw him on a news, he was on a, there was an event where someone got hurt. You know, he had he had an episode and, he, and someone got hurt and it made the news, right? And I remember watching the news and thinking, wow, you know, like, you think about yourself, how, how lucky you are, but then you also think about them and you go, what could we have done differently? And, and that we is a collective we. Like, you know, that's that's not just me. That's the other guys in the unit. That's people in defence. The reason why I moved to BA Systems was, was actually a family event. My dad got very, very sick back in Adelaide um, and I was living in Sydney. At the time, we, we thought that might have been close to the end for him. And so I sort of rushed back and, you know, there's, I'm one of four brothers and um, I said, I want to be close to my old man and spend some time with him because the previous years I'd just been out of country, right? So I just wanted to spend time with him. Talking to my old, old man, he was like, what are you going to do? And I said, look, I just want to get home. And I didn't really care at that point. I literally floated my, what well, I thought was a pretty good resume. I look back on it now and go, man, like there's hardly, there's a lot of blanks here, mate. You wrote, you wrote defense and then you wrote years and then you listed a bunch of operations, which probably makes no sense to anyone here in recruitment. I just floated it around to a bunch of companies and just thought, well, maybe one of them will give me a job, right? And I was really lucky that another veteran saw it and said, why don't you give him the job I originally applied for? I actually had no hope of getting. Like he was really awesome. He said, look, look man, you were never going to get that job, but we've got this other job and you know, we think that you'd be able to do that. So you just need to update some of your quals that I know you have. You just need to update them. I did a technician's job, um, which was sort of an adjacent job to what I was doing, but I was able to do the civilian qualifications for and get that. So that was able to get me a ticket back here. And, and BA have been fantastic. Like they got me here, they moved me down here, and that was something that I really appreciated at the time. I mean, they even helped me find a, a, a rental place. Since then, I haven't really left. Like I've sort of moved around to different jobs, like different roles, but I haven't left the company. So. That's part of my, I guess, one of my motivations was my, my story and how difficult it was to transition and, and getting those civilian, I guess, equivalents and finding that purpose. I found other people that were in, people that were around me were really struggling and I, and I just thought, well, I found purpose here, maybe you will too. So that was kind of the thinking and then we started just a conversational group um, at this site that I'm at at the moment. Um, it was just like, you know, people that had identified themselves as veterans and then the first thing we realized was do we actually know how many veterans are here and that was the first thing was like okay well we need to fix that like that was that and then um, other people who were think who were doing like the exact same thing like classic of a big company lots of people doing the same thing but they don't know of each other and then just a passing conversation you know with our ceo who is a veteran she said this guy over here is doing something very similar you should talk to him and then you know that sparked a conversation then you find out there's all these other people with the same intent and it was like, okay, and then that became, the, I guess, the nucleus for what they call the Veterans Advisory Committee. 
that's been, I guess, a really rewarding piece of BA systems is to being able to do those types of projects, you know, that align to your values because they align with the company values has been really, uh, I think, really critical for me. So that kind of puts me at peace, I guess, with, I guess, the struggle post getting out of defense, you know, what, uh, what is my purpose here and what am I doing? BAE Systems has just under 6,000 employees, with 10% of them being of veteran status. We've heard Matt and Gus talk a bit about the Veterans Advisory Committee, but now it's time to actually learn how it operates and what it does for transitioning veterans. Nancy Friend, our final guest for this episode, shares with us how the Veterans Advisory Committee assists ex-serving members in finding purpose outside defence. I was an aircraft life support fitter. So that role is a technician level role and it involves looking after all of the survival equipment that aircrew have, ranging from helmets, oxy masks, G-suits, packing parachutes. Quite an unusual role, but yeah, quite rewarding. I think it's a general misconception that if you're in the Air Force, you, you are a pilot. They probably make up a really small percentage of the Air Force footprint. So, My total time in the Air Force was about five and a half years. Unfortunately, I was medically discharged. I was diagnosed while I was serving with Crohn's disease, which is an inflammatory bowel disease. And at the time, that was really seen as quite high risk. So because of that, there's no cure for it. I was medically discharged just short of the six years of serving, which was a shame. It was a really difficult time for me because joining the Air Force was all that I wanted to do. I didn't have a plan B or a, or a backup plan. And certainly the job that I was doing in the Air Force didn't really translate to a role on civilian street. So it left me really quite lost the Veterans Advisory Committee, we've been around in its formal structure for about 18 months, coming on to two years. It is really an advocate to our executive leadership team on veteran initiatives and why it's important for us to bring veterans into our organisation and what value they add. But the committee is also really focused on initiatives and activities that help support veterans and we have only really started to scratch the surface in this space. Its beginnings really came from a grassroots in the business. We found that there were quite a few little groups of veterans that were really quite interested in making sure that we as a business were looking at how we could attract more veterans to our organisation how we can provide support to those veterans because they all come with a whole heap of skills and experiences um, and some come with some challenges as well for them you know from that have come from their previous experience while serving so it was really important to a number of these little veteran groups that was sort of starting to informally establish we as a business knew what it mean to have a veteran in our organisation and know what it means to support a veteran. But we also, so through these little groups, it started to be a bit of a swell of 
interest in in trying to get some formality or some structure and some buy-in to veterans more broadly. And it all sort of coincided with when Gabby Costigan came in as our CEO, being a veteran and having served in the Army. For her, it was really important that we look at how we attract, recruit and retain veterans. I think that sort of was a perfect timing to these little groups that were starting to establish. And as a result, we had some executive level sponsorship to stand up this Veterans Advisory Committee. The Veterans Advisory Committee, when it first started, um, in fact, the way in which we got membership into the committee was an application had gone out to all veterans in the business to nominate themselves and to tell us a little bit about what their background was and what they believe they can bring to the committee. And from that process, I, I think a dozen odd people were selected to be involved in the Veterans Advisory Committee. The team is made up of not just veterans, but other supporting functions that help us with some of the initiatives that we we identify. So my role, obviously, the experience, I suppose, that I bring or the knowledge that I bring to the team is not only my skills around analysis and organisational skills and things like that, but it's a bit of the veteran experience and a bit of the experience around being a dependent spouse of a veteran as well. Veterans bring lots of skills and experiences to the organisations that they go to. So not just BAE, um, I mean, defence industry is huge. And, and some of those things are quite tangible and some of those things are a little softer and not quite so tangible. So obviously the direct obvious set of skills for a number of veterans. So if they're doing quite often in industry, you find you can have someone from industry doing the same job that a serving member would do. And that's a really obvious type transition. And it's actually a quite easy, much easier transition from a skills and job perspective. Then there's the the non-obvious sets of skills and experiences and, and even the cultural pieces around resilience and the ability to cope with change and understanding what it means around respect, um, the willingness to step up when it's needed. They're all sorts of soft type skills that veterans bring with them which are really important to the organisations that they're going to. But quite often you don't see that on a job description. So they're a little harder to explain, but they're invaluable to, to particularly to our organisation, they're invaluable to what it can add to the business. At the minute, what we are doing is providing mentoring to veterans as they come in. If they're interested in touching base with other veterans, then we help provide those connections to them. When they're actually applying for jobs before they've even accepted a job in BA systems, our talent acquisition teams have been through training to help veterans or those transitioning from service life into civilian street to help them translate their skills. We've also put in place some policies to ensure that all veterans who apply for jobs at BAE Systems, whether they're successful or not, receive a phone call or some feedback about their application process. We've 
got some more work to do around educating our line managers and our people partners who don't have a background in defence and, and in military, helping to educate them on what value, what skills, what good things veterans can bring to them and their teams, but also the varying levels of support that a veteran in their team might need, ranging from just help with assimilating into into a whole new environment, even you know, I was talking to someone who recently transitioned the other day out of the army. Even that, what do I wear on my first day of work? I have no idea. Do I wear a suit? Is it casual dress? Um, just even simple little things like that. If we can help educate line managers that when, you know, when they've got a new, a new person starting in their team and they have a fresh out of uniform, there's some extra support that they might need through that process, working out how to navigate you know, big organisation who operates quite differently to defence. So we, last year, through a lot of engagement that the, the Veterans Advisory Committee was doing with other people in industry, other organisations, other businesses, it came, became pretty apparent that there's this thirst across these other businesses and organisations to do something quite similar around supporting veterans. So we developed a best practice guide and that was really, it's a, it's a short guide that is a conversation starter. We provide some information about how we went about setting up a veterans advisory committee, what sort of initiatives that we put in place, what sort of policies and processes guidance on getting executive sponsorship. So it was really our lessons learned and information sharing so that other organisations and other businesses can do the same sorts of things because there is there is this growing focus, particularly in industry, around supporting veterans and around acknowledging that there's a lot that can be gained both for the veterans themselves but also for industry. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soldier On podcast. Soldier On is a not-for-profit veteran support organisation delivering a range of services to enable serving and ex-serving veterans and their families to thrive. If listening to today's podcast has brought up any personal concerns for yourself, a list of support services can be found in our show notes. The Soldier On podcast is produced by Smartfella Media, with special thanks to the team at Artsound FM in Canberra. I'm Hugh Rimmington. Thanks for listening. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. <laughs> <laughs>